Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Star Cells and God. This is the podcast where we explore scientific discoveries happening at the frontiers and look at what those discoveries mean for the Christian faith, for evidence for God's existence and the reliability of Scripture. My name is Fuzz Rana. I am a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I'm joined in studio by my friend and colleague, Jeff Zwerink, who is an astrophysicist and a Christian apologist. And we both work for an organization called Reasons to Believe, which sponsors this podcast. So if you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, go to our website, www.reasons.org, or follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. And then last but not least, make sure you go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One, and subscribe. And also while you're there, hit the notification button so that you will be reminded when the next episode of Star Cells and God drops. Okay, well, without any further ado, let's get into to today's discoveries. Uh, Jeff, you're going to lead us off with a discovery about the impact event that uh, led to the extinction of dinosaurs. <laughs> Yeah, I am going to talk about that. And, I, you know, there's just this inordinate fascination I have with explosions and very powerful things. And I, say, I have to be a little careful because, uh, you know, I just watch things that happen and I'm, I'm fascinated by the physics of what's going on. Uh, you know, I mean, remember when, uh, you know, two, two events that come to mind are the, you know, the, the knocking down of the Twin Towers mm -hmm. and the large earthquake and then tsunami that followed in Sumatra, I think back in 2004. Um, you know, there, there's the, 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 the physical, you know, the people devastation that happened in there. But from a physics perspective, just that's pretty fascinating to me. I mean, you've got these incredibly tall towers, you know, planes flying in. One, they withstand that impact. But then what ultimately causes them to fall, they fell by two different mechanisms. And just, I mean, you think of a, of a building that is 1,100 feet tall come crashing down. I mean, you know, so it just the, the, the raw power involved in a lot of those things I find fascinating, and particularly with the Sumatran earthquake, you know, there's this massive earthquake, one of the largest in recorded human history, but then you've got this tsunami that comes afterwards where you've got, you know, tens of meters high water come mm -hmm. uh, washing over the land. And again, uh, you know, separating from the the human impact, which was devastating, there's just a how you get that much water to move around is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so when as I was reading through some of the literature and I ran across this article that was talking about the uh, extinction level event where an, a large asteroid, something about 15 kilometers in diameter, comes, hits the earth down in the Yucatan Peninsula just off the coast in the shallow water there. The devastation that is wrought by an impact that large is just phenomenal. Uh, I remember doing some investigations and looking at Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9, which was this yeah. asteroid or a comet that hit Jupiter a number of years back. And they were, you're talking about things the size of a few football fields, so much smaller in impact, or much smaller. But something like that impacting the Earth, the energy released, I actually you know, sat down and was just trying to do some calculations on that, and the energy released from one of those smaller s fragments releases about 10,000 times more energy than the simultaneous detonation of the entire nuclear arsenal of the world. 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of some of the most magnificent or most powerful things that we've made, and they just pale in comparison to what routinely happens in in creation. And so that's that's kind of the fascination here. Uh, this 14 kilometer diameter thing that hit in the shallow waters off the Yucatan Peninsula uh, just sprayed a bunch of debris up into the atmosphere. Uh, along with a massive volcanic eruption that had been going on for probably a million years before that, resulted in one of the five great mass extinctions in the Earth, where uh, you know just multiple species of life went extinct. This is the kind of notable because it's the end of the Cretaceous period. And if you know the Cretaceous period, that's where all the dinosaurs lived. And so this is responsible for wiping out the dinosaurs. What fascinated me about this discovery, though, was not talking about the asteroid collision and what it did to the atmosphere and all of that, but it was looking specifically at the, how, how that impacted with the water because that's uh, much harder to find a record of that. You know, you can find the debris ring or the crater from the asteroid, and they found that there's uh, any time an asteroid or comet hits, there's typically... Uh, a unique signature of the metals and the elements in there. You can look for that and they can find all that. But the tsunami, I mean, that's that's water. I mean, it moves around, it dissipates, uh, it, <clears throat> regardless of how big or whatever. There, it's just gonna it's gonna be hard to figure out what is the record of something like that happening. And so this particular study had kind of two segments of its research. One is modeling what would the tsunami look like. And then could we find any evidence that this actually happened? And so what you've got is this large asteroid coming in, hitting the Earth. And what they did is they, for about 10 minutes of that, or for the collision and after, they used some hydro code that allows us to model everything and get what the water's doing. And then after about 10 minutes, the you can take that and connect it up with a water propagation code and figure out where does this all go. And so if you kind of go to the first slide there, uh, this is kind of, you know, at about two and a half minutes, what you have is this big spray of debris. That's the yellow stuff. But that little blue blurb kind of spraying out is a, is a 10 kilometer high wave of water. I mean, let that sink in. 10 kilometer high wave of water. So that'd be about five miles. <laughs> Five to seven miles, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so so this is what goes on. This is about two and a half minutes. As time goes on, about 10 minutes later, this thing is still sh flopping around. And it's a, uh, about 10 minutes later, it's only a mile high at that point in time. But it's propagated 200 kilometers away from the impact site. And so... Uh -huh. You could imagine the devastation and the power that's being absorbed by the ocean and then propagated out into uh, the the areas around. And the cool part about this, or what I, you know, one of the parts that I found fascinating, is you know you've got the impact on the the Yucatan Peninsula, which you know the the geography of the continents was different at the at the time. But what you, it's kind of in a in a little cove there, if you will. And so the impact happens and it propagates out from that. It goes, it reflects off of kind of the Gulf of Mexico and then down in. But it largely, most of the energy, as you'll see in the next slide, is directed up into the northern Atlantic Ocean mm -hmm. and down into the southern Pacific Ocean. And 
by modeling the first 10 minutes and figuring out what is just kind of the, the scale of things and then connecting that up with water propagation codes, what they're able to determine is that, uh, and, you know, along with having these massive waves, that the flow velocities were you know, on the order of 20 centimeters a second. You know, so it's like it goes about that far in a second, which you think, okay, that's not that big a deal, but that's enough to scour the ocean floor. Mm. They're thinking, okay, if it's scouring the ocean floor, that leads to a geologic signature. We could go look for evidence of the, the KPG boundary, uh, Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary, and all the sediments prior to that being washed away due to the scouring of this tsunami. And so, you know, you can see there, again, it's directed down towards uh, into the southern Pacific, up into the northern Atlantic. Uh, most, you know, and again, if you just follow it out of the little place in the Gulf of Mexico there, you see it's going to propagate. That's where it's going to go. And so if you go to the next uh, slide, what they were able to do now is then go look at archaeological, <laughs> not archaeological sites, but geological sites where you've got drill cores and outcroppings and ask the question, do we see evidence of this scouring happening? And the evidence would be as you're going through mm. and drilling down through and looking at the outcroppings, where that boundary or that particular geologic feature of the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary would happen, it's going to be washed away. And so what they see, so in, in this uh, image, you've got the blue is, or the kind of the aquamarine color there is where the tsunami and these flow velocities are going to be high. The yellow or the red is where you have the complete record where you have the mm. Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary. And the yellow is where it's been, you've got this hiatus where you don't have any geologic record there. And what you'll notice is that if you move away from that blue region, you've got a mix of the red and the yellow there. Uh, yeah, there's places where it is, places where it isn't. But inside that blue region, except where you get up onto the continents, which are in gray there, for the, that's the, the continents as they existed 66 million years ago, You'll see that virtually all of the sites where they look, there's been this washing away. And so this is evidence that you have this actually large tsunami that causes all of this kind of catastrophic destruction. Now, at the end of the day, this probably isn't doing much to the marine life or anything, but it's just <laughs> another piece of evidence that says, yes, we have a large impact that comes. We see the impact crater. We actually can determine what are the after effects of this and it all lines up and matches. So it kind of just lends even more evidence, not like I had any any concern that uh, there was uh, this large impact event, but this just adds more evidence to that picture, gives us a lot more confidence of that. And so I was kind of thinking, okay, so is there any apologetic significance to this outside of just being cool? Um, and, you know, two thoughts struck me. One is that these sorts of events happen pretty commonly, uh, mm -hmm. that we have asteroid events that caused a, an extinction. There's uh, papers that I've been reading <laughs> that a large asteroid collision might have been uh, what was responsible for actually generating the continents or getting continent formation started on the Earth so that it, it grew more rapidly, may have even actually started the plate tectonic movement of subduction that for whatever reason, God seems to be using these very powerful, very cataclysmic events to prepare Earth for us to be here. 
And it just reminded me of the passage out of Psalm 104, if you could pop up, because you know, we kind of have this idea that God creates all the life and that, uh, you know, particularly in the young earth way of looking at things, any sort of death is a result of the fall. But I, I've just hearkened back to this passage in Psalm 104, which is a, a, a creation psalm where it's describing what's going on during creation. You know, you've got that parallel six-day structure to it, but there's also kind of before and afters in there. But there's this passage in, in the context of the sixth creation day. You know, all creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open their hand, your hand, you're, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. That this has, to me, the image of, okay, God is creating things. They're there for a while. He's feeding, nourishing them. He withdraws, they die, and then he creates again which is very much in line with what we see here. We've got these dinosaurs that for millions of years, I think it's close to 200 million years, dinosaurs roamed and dominated the earth. God is, you know, he's opening his hand. They're satisfied with good things. And then he withdraws his hand, wipes them out, and then he introduces new creatures, all in preparation of getting to where we are today. And so this, this just strikes me as a one more piece of a, very strong case that what the Bible describes about how creation works is what we find when we look at the scientific record. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of thoughts I have. One is, particularly to the, your point that these asteroidal impacts very well may have triggered, you know, the process of subduction, may mm -hmm. very well have triggered continent formation. If that's the case, then really the history of life on Earth is is dependent upon this fortuitous event mm -hmm. that happened really at the just right time with the just right magnitude in, in Earth's history. And that's, mm -hmm. that's a bit eerie, right? It, it is. Well, and, you know, I, one of the things that I've said many times in my talks is that, you know, when you look at planet formation from an astronomical perspective, as planets form, they form out of this disk of material. Well, the bigger the disk, the, the, the larger the planets, but the more junk you're going to be left over with. And, you know, I, there's uh, simulations as you look through the history of the solar system or what matches how you get from the planets forming to what they look like today. And the scenario has this very large debris disk where Saturn and Jupiter, as they migrate, they go through resonances, and they end up scattering this debris disk and getting rid of it. And I always thought, okay, well, you need to get rid of it so that there are not as many collisions or so that there are very few collisions because that's kind of detrimental to yeah. particularly human life. And it reduced it by about a factor of a thousand. So these sorts of events that would, instead of happening on the scale of 100 million years, they kept on a scale of 100,000 years. Well, that's human time scale. But it's not just that you need to get them down to nothing. It's that you need to get them down to a small amount so that they can make these critical steps happening like planet for or like continent formation like subduction like extinction events that al that allow new organisms to be there that you got to have enough of them but not too many of them yeah yeah that's pretty remarkable well you know something else that you know this is really an impressive study it's mm -hmm. <laughs> you know really very clever in right. terms of of how they went about you know providing corroborating evidence for the 
the impact of the tsunami. But it really highlights the fact of how complex the, the geological record is. Mm-hmm. And, it, and as you were describing it, I'm thinking, well, if I'm looking at the geological record from a young earth perspective, how do you explain the, 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 the types of features that you're pointing out where in some places in the ocean you have this, this complete record mm-hmm. and other places the record is, is incomplete because of this tsunami event or at least presumably because of the tsunami event. So how do you account from a young earth perspective for just simply the complexity of the the geological layers Mm -hmm. that correspond to, again, that KT paleogene boundary? Yeah, that that's an interesting question, and honestly, I just don't know. I don't know enough geology to answer that, so I don't know what the complexity is well enough to address it. And I, I haven't studied young earth geology in depth enough to know how they would respond. But there is this very interesting aspect of the geology is that there are places where every the whole ge- the uh, much of the geological columns in place and other places where some are there and some aren't. And why is there this general coherence but all of these irregularities to it? This sort of scenario where you've got cataclysmic events happening in various places, sometimes calm, sometimes cataclysmic. That seems to account for that. How you do that in the context of one single flood, as chaotic as that would be, it still seems a little bit troubling. I would be curious to know how a young yeah, earth creationist yeah. would answer that. So, Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Interesting study to be certain, Jeff. I, I think the, the one final point that uh, I stands out to me about this is that I'm more and more aware that as a physicist and as a scientist, we kind of have an idea that when we can explain something, we understand it or have mastery over it. And just the, the power and the magnitude of things like this, it's like, I may understand it, but there's no way I could do that. And the fact that that's just a part, you know, I mean, if Christianity is correct, God's doing this and he's not even getting tired. I mean, this is just what he regularly does. It's, it's a, gives me a bigger picture of how powerful, how majestic and how awesome God is. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the forces of nature, as you're pointing out, are just beyond our comprehension in terms of the the energy and the, in the magnitude of those forces. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, uh, let me go ahead and get started with with my discovery, and um, uh, just to kind of ease us in, I got a, a little quiz for you, Jeff. Uh, all right, <laughs> a little riddle maybe. Um, here's a list of things. I wonder if you can tell me what the, this list has in common: pizza, organic fruits and vegetables, weather in Southern California, some movies, some music, some art, and pictures drawn by little children. <laughs> oh, good grief! Uh, the weather in well, I, so the weather in Southern California is pretty the same all the time. Organic, boy, that's I'm sorry, <laughs> right, there's no right. way. Yeah, I, I would have been amazed if you got it. it. These are all things that even when they're bad, they still are pretty good. Okay, yeah. all so, right, <laughs> so, that's, that's solid. I'll give you that. So. Okay, so anyway, um, I came up with that. So all right, I like that. I all right, so that. so yeah, you know, so. Uh, Maybe I you know, don't quit my day job, as you might say. But th- that, in a sense, really describes um, 
the results of this work done by a team of Japanese scientists who are trying to understand the extent or the degree of optimization of the genetic code. Okay. And their results are good and bad for someone who advocates for a design or a, a creation model perspective mm -hmm. on the, the origin and the history of life. And, um, you know, one of the things that I find remarkable is that in, in the last couple of decades, there's been this emerging consensus that the genetic code, it, which defines the information in, inside the cell, is has a set of, is in it comprised of a set of rules is exquisitely optimized that the idea that the code is 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 exquisitely optimized is no longer controversial i remember 20 years ago when people were suggesting that that idea was indeed controversial so now people are are trying to understand the extent of that optimization and uh, trying to look for ways to explain the optimization from you know within a materialistic naturalistic framework, and so this is a, a paper which actually demonstrates that the code is even more optimal than we thought, but that there may be other codes beyond the code that we see in nature that may even be more optimal. Okay, and so that that isn't necessarily boding well for the design argument, but when we begin to unpack some of this work, we see that even when we see a result that's bad, it's still pretty good okay. for the design <laughs> argument. So a, a little bit of background so people can appreciate really uh, the the idea of code optimization. And uh, it all starts here with what's called the central dogma of molecular biology. This is a, a name given to this set of processes by Francis Crick, okay. who um, it, it w was an outspoken atheist, and he lamented that use of terminology later on, uh, but the name stuck uh, because in science there's really never dogma. Uh, but anyway, it's the way in which essentially information flows I inside the cell. And, you know, DNA is a, a large molecule that stores information within its structure that dictates to the cell's machinery the types of proteins to produce and even will regulate the production of those proteins, mm -hmm. controlling the amount and the timing for when those proteins are produced. And uh, it, the information in DNA is digital, uh, to first approximation at least. There's also analog information in DNA, but we won't get into that. And it, it consists of essentially four discrete units or uh, four nucleotides that are used to build DNA Okay. And it's the sequence of those nucleotides that contains the information needed, again, to produce the machinery of the cell and to regulate its operations. And a region of DNA that contains the information needed to make a single protein is called a gene. And uh, that, uh, that protein that is specified by the gene is in the form of an information-harboring molecule as well in which there are 20 amino acids that are used to build the protein. Mm -hmm. um, uh, these are called the canonical set of amino acids. Uh, and, uh, and, and so you have, in a sense, two different languages. You have the language of DNA, mm -hmm. which consists of four nucleotides, and the language of proteins, which consists of 20 amino acids. And so the question is, how does the cell know how to decode the information in DNA to make 
to make proteins. And this is where the genetic code comes into play. It's a set of rules that converts the information in DNA into the information in proteins. And okay. that, that translation from one language to another is done through, a, through machinery that is heavily centered around a, a class of molecules called RNA molecules or ribonucleic acids. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. But here is uh, the genetic code. It's a, it's a, this is a table showing uh, the, the, the set of rules that define the information in DNA and then al allow the cell to translate that information into proteins. Now, as I mentioned, there are four nucleotides that contain the information in DNA, 20 amino acids. So there can't be a one-to-one -one correspondence of right. nucleotide to amino acids. Well, you could have um, doublets where maybe uh, combinations of two nucleotides specify an amino acid. Well, that would give you four to the second power or 16 mm -hmm. coding units. That's still not enough. So the smallest uh, uh, arrangement to specify 20 amino acids would be what are called coding triplets, where you'd have four to the third power or 64 coding units. Right. And so that's what you see here in this table is 64 combinations of nucleotide sequences and the amino acids that they specify. And so the, the first point is that the, the coding unit in the genetic code is a, is a codon or a coding triplet. Mm -hmm. and, and this is how it works if you look at a, now we're looking at an RNA molecule. So the idea here is that when the information in a gene is going to be read, and then used to produce proteins, that information is copied into a molecule called messenger RNA. Mm -hmm. uh, and that messenger RNA contains the instructions that will be used at the ribosome to make the protein. And so this is the, an RNA molecule. <coughs> Excuse me. And you can see uh, the sequence of nucleotides and then how these uh, coding triplets form and in uh, different number of codons that are along the length of the, the RNA molecule. And then this slide shows how that then is using that set of rules in that, the table we just showed, how that then uh, translates into amino acid sequence. So, so you got this, you know, like in humans, 3 billion A, T, Cs, and Gs, or, you know, whichever, right. which are those four letters. And as three of those come together, and in, in whenever you get the like CUU, that's always leucine. Yes. Um, regardless of where it would happen in the genetic code. So you've right. got these blocks of three that say, all right, here's an amino acid of a certain sort. Right. Okay. And where the genetic code becomes important is in genes. Okay. You know, because you have usually some kind of sequence that delimits the their mm -hmm. delimiters to the gene. And so the gene is a contiguous sequence to, again, to first approximation. Uh, in which that you you start at the beginning of the gene and you start identifying coding triplets in, con, gotcha. in a contiguous manner along the length. Okay, so it's not just that there are these arrangements of three uh, base pairs that uh, that specify an amino acid. You now have this second level of this sequence of amino acid right. says, "All right, here's a gene, or this gene does this." Yes, yes, yes. Okay. and that's what's uh, attempting to. That's the attempt. Gotcha to display that is that this is the RNA on the top that's a copy from the DNA. Right. <coughs> Those are the, the codons and then 
those are the amino acids, but it's 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 a contiguous sequence. Right, gotcha. Right, and so then uh, here's a again the depiction of the code, and just for um, for those people that are keeping score at home, to use a baseball analogy, the way you read the table is um, the the column uh, on the left, which has U, C, A, and G, is the first position. The row on the top is the second position in the codon. Uh, and then the third position is specified within the blocks itself. Right. So in the first, phenylalanine it can be uh, coded by two different codons, UUU and UUC. So right. uh, that, and then this is another way the code is depicted. This is just a, a pie type chart where the interior circle is the, is the beginning of the codon. The second uh, concentric circle is the second position and the third concentric cir circle corresponds to the third position. And so again, you can see um, the, that the set of rules. So, so that tracks and enables you to see, okay, here's how the combinations go. Right. But, oh, okay, no, it actually does show how that there are different ones that make the same. So like glycine has, yeah. really doesn't matter what that last position is. You're yes. always gonna get glycine yes. once you and, get the and, first And two. you're bringing up a really important point, uh, and that is that there is a, what, what biochemists call a degeneracy to the genetic mm -hmm. code, uh, or a better way to say it maybe is a redundancy right. for, for, for lay people. And the idea is that if you've got 64 codons and 20 amino acids, some of those codons, there, some amino acids are going to be specified by more than one codon. Right. And that's where the code displays its redundancy. Some codons are considered to be start codons, some are stop codons. Mm -hmm. So this is telling you where... The, the, the gene begins where the gene ends. Just one question I have, this may, may be a little bit of a rabbit trail, but so you've got 20 amino acids, 64 possible sequences. It does work out that different sequences will give the same amino acid. So those 64 map unique or map completely onto the 20 amino acids. It seems like it could have been that there are 20 there are 64 po possibilities, 20 of them map to amino acids, and 44 just don't do anything. Um, is there anything significant about that? Uh, I, I, the reason why that scenario wouldn't work is because, again, that the sequence is, is contiguous. And right. So I, so I think if you – in that scenario, you would it would be very difficult to build uh, a contiguous sequence of, of – um, well, it's, so you'd still build a contiguous sequence. There just would be 44 options that are now in there that couldn't be in there. Okay, okay. Yeah, you know, it would make it more restrictive or more... Yeah, I see. The, the code would have to be... Or the, the, the implementation right. of the code would have to be more precise. Yeah, I, well, I think when we get into the, to the, the, the discovery, okay. then it'll, you'll see why it actually is better that it's not that way. Okay. Well, I'll, and, let you, and, and I'll let you keep going then. <laughs> the, the redundancy. Another, another really quick point beyond the redundancy is that um, that the, the, in a sense, the genetic code is universal. Basically, every organism on the planet has the same set of coding rules. Okay. Now, there are examples of what are called non-universal codes, but when you examine those codes, they are essentially the the genetic code found in all organisms with one or two coding assignments being changed out. So they are, they are minor deviants okay. 
uh, of the of the standard genetic code. So the code is is universal, and um, which means that it must have originated very early mm-hmm. in in life's history, probably before the last universal common ancestor. If you're thinking about life's history in evolutionary terms, gotcha. maybe even before that. Uh, but one of the things, as I mentioned, is that this set of rules, as we'll see in a second, isn't haphazard, uh, but there's a rationale to these rules that's connected to the redundancy of the code. Okay. And that leads to a code that is exquisitely optimized. Uh, and it's really a multidimensional optimization, but it's optimized to withstand the harmful effects of what are called mutations or mm. changes in the, in the nucleotide sequence of, of DNA. And well, so, so, so that goes directly to why you wouldn't want to have 20 or of the 64, only 20 map on by having multiple ones that map on, you could have mutations that are still going to result in the same amino acid sequence. Yes, exactly. Okay, all right. Yeah. And, and, and so this is an example of a, of a mutation and there's different mutations that we'll talk about in a minute, but the one that we're going to focus on are, are called substitution mutations. So what we see is in the top, the, the top block, that's the normal DNA sequence. And you can see that in the third codon, mm-hmm. a C is, is tra- changed into a G, mm-hmm. and that leads to a different amino acid, arginine. And so that then means that you're, you're going to alter potentially the, the folding of the protein, the three-dimensional structure, and maybe alter its function. So right. mutations, generally speaking, are harmful. Right. Now, as you've already d- indicated and, uh, and we've, we ch- have chatted about a little bit, is that when we look at the genetic code, we see just from visual inspection that the rules of the code are not haphazard. Mm-hmm. There, they, there's actually a rationale to them. And when it, there was a, a famous paper written in the 1960s by Francis Crick, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering the structure of DNA, but he also was very interested in really understanding how information uh, manifested and flowed mm-hmm. in okay. biological systems and uh, wrote a paper on the origin of the genetic code where he's looking at how can you account for the origin of the code in evolutionary terms. And really there were two options available to him. One is it was just a frozen accident mm-hmm. that the rules just happened to come in place and then they were just frozen in place. The other is that the code was shaped through evolutionary processes, through natural selection. And Crick concluded that the code cannot must be a frozen accident uh, because if it was if it had it evolved through natural selection, that would create a lethal scenario for the cell. And the reason why is that if you change the coding assignment for one uh, codon to another mm-hmm. to another amino acid that would end up changing every the the amino acid composition of every protein in the cell which okay. would it would be in effect causing mutations to every protein in the cell right and so he argued that that because of the lethality of that situation once the code is instantiated it can't evolve now okay all right since then have discovered that you can get very limited evolution of the code. This is the, the explanation for these deviants mm-hmm. or the, the non-universal codes, but they typically involve uh, low-frequency codons that uh, code amino, you know, that, that um, will, if you change their coding assignment, will have minimal impact on the, the, the proteome of the cell. Okay. 
or they involve a stop codon being uh, used to code for a different amino acid. So these are very limited evolutionary changes under highly specific sets of conditions. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I think Crick was right that that the code evolution, uh, that code evolution would be catastrophic to the cell. That you know, from an evolutionary perspective, it must be a frozen accident. The problem hmm, is, okay. is that when you look at the structure of the code, there there is a a structure there that says it's not a frozen accident. And, and, and so, for example, uh, the code seems to be optimized to minimize the effect of substitution mutations. So, for example, with phenylalanine, it's UUU that p specifies phenylalanine. But mm -hmm. if you have a mutation in the third position where a U is replaced with a C, you're going to, you're going to still gotcha. code for a phenylalanine. Now, there's a deeper structure than that. Because if you have a mutation that goes from a U to an A or a G, you're going to now code for leucine. Right. But leucine has very similar chemical and physical properties to phenylalanine. And so okay. even, even if you change the amino acid, you still are producing an amino acid that is very, again, that the physical chemical properties are very similar Interesting. To, the, to the amino acid that originates. And so in the 1990s, a team at the University of Plymouth, I think, uh, headed up by Lawrence Hurst, uh, did a, a series of calculations where they compared the error minimization capacity of mm -hmm. the code in nature to uh, to a million random genetic codes that they right. could. So they retain the same block structure. When we look at the code, this is referred to as the block structure, where what they ended up doing is that, for example, in the first two blocks, instead of that being phenylalanine, it, they would just randomly assign oh, okay. a different amino acid to it, but they retained the block structure. Gotcha. So you still would have that, that redundancy effect. Mm -hmm. And what they discovered is that of the a million codes that they generated, uh, the code in nature appeared to be unique in terms of its error minimization capacity. So this slide shows a bottom axis where that number ref is an error uh, as error is an error minimization number the larger the number the less effective the code is at error minimization the lower the number the better right. and what we see is this gaussian distribution and we see that the code in nature is again an outlier a right. statistical outlier so so this analysis doesn't the one in a million part isn't that there's the redundancy built into the code it's when you when you're actually moving from instead of doing something where you get phenylalanine and phenylalanine you move from phenylalanine to something else this is saying that the way the structure is set or the the way that that uh substitution of amino acid works is as good as it or is the one in a million yes okay exactly. all right so the code in nature seems to be exquisitely optimized right. for error minimization with respect to substitution mutations now when you look at the number of possible genetic codes, when you've got that block structure, when you retain mm -hmm. the block structure, it's 10 to the 18. So really 10 to the 6 codes is a small sampling of 10 to the 18. <laughs> still 10 to the 12 left. But, but when they repeat the analysis using different uh, random sets of codes, they always wind up with this Gaussian distribution, which says to me that the code in nature is probably 
if not unique, is 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 there's really going to be a relatively small number right. that that have that error minimization capacity. Now, in the latest paper <clears throat> that I want to talk about, again, there's kind of good news and bad news in this paper, because from from a an ID perspective, from a you know, a creation model perspective, optimization would be an indication of design, mm -hmm. right? Right. That, that, you know, whenever you see codes, we know from experience that codes come from minds. <coughs> Excuse me. And when we see this elegant structure mm -hmm. to the code that appears to be exquisitely optimized, that just reinforces the idea that the code really is designed. Right. Because, again, going back to Crick's point, it can't be a frozen accident, but it can't really evolve. So how do you explain that optimization? Well, the only other option you have is that, uh, th that there must be a designer right. that's responsible for the code. Now, what these, this team pointed out is that, well, there's technically 10 to the 80 possible genetic codes, not 10 to the 18. So if you relax the block structure and you just look at random codes mm -hmm. with irregardless of the block structure, there's actually 10 to the 80. Okay. And so they pointed out, well, when this work was done in the 90s, the computational power and techniques didn't exist mm -hmm. to sample that many codes. Uh, and, and so they remedied that. They developed a, a mathematical technique to sample uh, 10 to the 80 codes <clears throat> as opposed to 10 to the 18. Okay. And they discovered that actually they had to go through 10 to the 20 codes before they could find one that was equivalent to the code in nature. So it's not one in a million. It's one in 10 to the 20th power, Okay, you know, in terms of the optimization. But they discovered that the code space, they were able now to construct code space mm -hmm. uh, where they would look at error um, minimization – uh, as a, a function of the different types of codes. And, right. and so this is a, a principal component analysis that kind of mm -hmm. gives an overview of, of what the code space looks like. And it looks like basically four fingers. So on the left, this is kind of like the, again, the, the distribution of the, the, of the different types of codes. Mm -hmm. And then on the right is a, kind of a three-dimensional depiction of that. Uh, and what we see is that the genetic code is in one of those fingers, and it's near the top, but but not quite at the top. Okay. And that there's other codes that would exist that actually display even greater optimization than the, the genetic code. So is that so we're in that little blob that's like 23. Is that how much of the work it is, or that's like the Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that blob constitutes 23% of the of the of the 10 to the 80 codes. Okay. And then the red one is 44%. Gotcha. All right. Right. And, and so, so so we're in that 23% blob, but we're not at the top <laughs> of that blob. There are other right. other codes that are further So even up. though the code is 1 in 10 to the 20th, there are still probably 10 to the 60 codes that are out there, and many of those codes actually are equal or maybe even e better. Equal or better. Okay. So this is where, it, you know, the, the, this is kind of the bad news. Right. But... The, the point I would make here is, and this is a really fine study, is that in this study, they only looked at code optimization with regard to substitution mutations. Okay. When you actually factor in another type of mutations, which are called frame shift mutations, mm -hmm. and that's the idea there is that you've actually either inserted 
or you removed a nucleotide. So it's the insertion or the deletions that we're looking yeah. at the bottom there. And when, and you, when, you, when you insert or delete one or two, you've actually now, from that point on, shifted the frame, mm -hmm. shifted the reading frame. Right. And so that means from that point on, every one of the amino acids in the protein has changed. Right. It is a, uh, it, so frame shift mutations are devastating mutations, generally speaking. Well, it, it, doesn't that kind of harken back to what Crick was saying about why it couldn't have evolved? Is it's that sort of mutation is so devastating yes. that it had to be frozen somewhere? So. Yes, yes. That's okay. kind of the idea. Uh, and But in 2018, there was a paper published where we, we don't need to read this, but the, but the researchers concluded that the genetic code is also optimized to harbor frame shift mutations as well. Okay. In addition to that, the code is also optimized to harbor multiple overlapping codes. So there's in DNA, it's not just the genetic code, but there's like a histone binding mm -hmm. code, transcription factor binding codes. There are spliceosome codes, codes that are involved in the three-dimensional structure of RNA molecules. Mm -hmm. and, and so a, a research team showed in actually er, as early as 2007 that the universal genetic code is optimized to harbor multiple overlapping codes. Right. It's also optimized to uh, to be able to accommodate overlapping genes and also for resource resource conservation, so that when you replace an amino acid, when when there's a mutation that takes place, the amino acid that replaces the one is one that has um, the same or just slightly greater energetic cost to produce oh, through metabolic pathways. So in other words- So not, not just the function, but the cost to produce is very yeah. similar. Interesting. So, so there's multiple, it's a multi-dimensional optimization. It's not a mm -hmm. optimization along a single parameter. And so when you factor this, in, and I don't know how you would mathematically do this, right? <laughs> but what that suggests is that probably the structure of code space is kind of those four fingers is probably not correct. Yeah. Right, that 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 is with respect to substitution mutations. It's not with respect to this multi-dimensional optimization. So, right. in a sense, we really don't know what code space looks like. But to to think about a code that is optimized again with a number of factors simultaneously being considered suggests that probably the code in nature is is unique, mm -hmm. or at least you can make a a reasoned argument that it probably is unique. Again, we don't know uh, because nobody's been able to do that kind of an analysis, right. but uh, it, it doesn't mean that this analysis, as fine as it is, actually stands because, mm -hmm. again, they were looking at a single parameter. Now, You know, I, I, question for you because this, I remember, and this is a little bit simplistic and I don't want to minimize the the complexity of what's going on here. But I remember when I learned that, okay, humans use oxygen, we need oxygen, and I come to discover that the atmosphere only has 20% oxygen. And I'm thinking, if oxygen's so good, why just 20%? It seems like you could go 100% and be better. You know, and I've subsequently learned, well, one, humans are not the only thing. There's more to the ecosystem. But if you get much more than 100% oxygen, you get devastating wildfires. And there's yeah. other yeah. other consequences that the – my sense of what should be optimized was limited by my understanding of the system itself. Yeah. It sounds like there's something similar going on it, here. It, it, exactly, exactly. And so again, it's very fine work, you know. But it in you know it's important work. Mm -hmm. 
But, you know, to me what's significant is, one, is that it is highlighting that there is a greater degree of optimization to the mm-hmm. code than we thought. Uh, and, and that it's now become, again, commonplace for people to think of the code as being optimized. Right. It's just that we don't understand what code space really looks like. Yeah. And, and, and what is the code in nature really unique, you know, and how, you know, and if so, how different is it from other possible codes? But again, it's, it's very clear that the code is exquisitely optimized. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm curious. So, you know, you look at that and you say, okay, it was one in a million. Now we know it's closer to something one in 10 to the 20, that as our knowledge grew, <laughs> the things that we knew to constrain got th- – there were more possibilities of what could be, right. and yet what still did what we knew needed to happen was even a smaller fraction of it. So yes. our, in this, in that instance, our, as our knowledge grew, the level of fine-tuning or optimization grew. Yeah. Um, it makes sense to me that as our knowledge continues to grow, maybe what we think is, you know, there's 10 to the 60 that could be better. It may be that – Things that we thought were true really aren't there, and so yeah. is it is it is it possible that as we learn more about that, that that fine tuning could actually diminish? It seems like the fine tuning is based on what we know. We just can't assess the rest of the space. Right. It, yeah. It, it, I think that nobody's going to. I don't think we're going to find anything that says the code isn't optimized. Okay. It's just to what degree right. is the is the code unique, okay. right? Or what is the uniqueness of the code, mm-hmm. right? And, and how does it stack up to other possible codes? So that, that still is the outstanding question. Now, So, so a, walk, or a walk away or takeaway <clears throat> from that is that it really does look optimized. It seems like it's at least at this level, right. even with this, based on what we know that's the case, right. there's this region where we don't know whether it could go down to where yeah, you know, there's just a bunch of them, and it's still one in the twenty if you restrict it here right. when you go to the full space. Or it could be that as we go into the full space, right, it gets even tighter and tighter. So now, one other quick point, in, <clears throat> in as as if things weren't complicated enough as it is, when we let's we go back to the block structure of the code. In this analysis done by these Japanese researchers. They argued that really 10 to the 18 possible codes retaining the block structure is is highly restrictive. We really be, should be looking at 10 to the 80. Mm-hmm. However, I would argue that not only because of you know, convenience with regard to computational limitations, but there's actually a rationale for retaining the block structure of the code mm-hmm. when you're looking for other random codes that may perform better than the code in nature. And that's because that that block structure is not arbitrary. It's actually a reflection of the of the biochemical machinery mm, okay. that that is involved in instantiating the genetic code. Okay. I mean, the genetic code is a set of rules, but those rules have a, a physical manifestation in what are called transfer RNA molecules. And so, you know, we have the messenger RNA that goes to the ribosome in its position in the ribosome, and then it, the it's read, and mm-hmm. then the right amino acids are brought to match the codon to right. assemble the protein chain. Well, the the machinery that brings that amino the the right amino acids are transfer RNA molecules that have a region called an anticodon that binds to codons, and then also has another region called an acceptor stem where it binds a specific amino acid. 
Okay. And so there, there are transfer RNAs that correspond to different amino acids. And so there's this codon-anti-codon interaction that takes place uh, to, to, in effect, uh, position mm-hmm. the transfer RNA on the messenger RNA at the ribosome so that the amino acids attached to the transfer mm-hmm. RNA can get added to the growing protein chain. And it turns out that there are, there are these Watson-Crick base pairing rules mm-hmm. so that C always lines up with G, T or U always lines up with A. But in the anti-codon, there is a position called a wobble base, which actually has very sloppy base pairing rules. Okay, and, and so that is, in effect, the source of the redundancy. So, for example, these are, uh, uh, these are uh, uh, well, there's a set of a wobble rules that have been figured out. But essentially, the third base in the messenger RNA corresponds to the wobble position in the anticodon. And so when mm. you look at proline, for example, you see CCU, CCC, CCA, CCG. It's the third position is the wobble position. Right. So one transfer RNA can actually recognize all th- four of those codons. Right. And, and, and so the redundancy in the code is actually arising out of the wobble base interactions. And, and so mm, the, the, okay. the block structure of the code is, is not arbitrary. It's actually dictated by the wobble rules. So in, in essence, when they're looking at this code optimization and what could I do with other things, they're really just looking at, given these pairings, right. what might do it. Right. But now you're asking the question, how does the hardware work? Right. And the hardware may – you might find, hey, this is a better way to do it when you're looking at just the actual pairings, but you can't find the hardware that makes it work. Right. So the so the the, the assumption that the Japanese researchers made mm-hmm. is that the hardware is immaterial. Right. Whereas when you're looking at 10 to the 18 codes, based on the block structure, you're taking into account the hardware constraints. Right, okay. And so there really is only 10 to the 18 options. There's really not 10 to the 80 options gotcha. okay. in, in a physical sense. Right. So so a significant number of the of possible random codes could never physically exist because of the wobble rules. So you could make an argument, maybe there's a multiverse where the laws of physics are different that might allow those. But given right. our universe, right. we don't have access to those right. 10 to the 80. And here's it. another diagram kind of showing. <laughs> the, here's the wobble rules just for people that if they really are interested in this. you know. Uh, but, but the bottom line is that you instead of having 64 transfer RNAs, there's only 31 gotcha. that are able to, because of, the, again, the redundancy of the code is largely arising out of the codon-anti-codon interactions and the wobble rules. So in other words, when you take that into account, it takes us back to the original analysis where really the genetic code does indeed appear to be exquisitely optimized. So again, you know, I I think that it's reasonable for somebody who holds to a, a design or a creation model perspective to look at the code and say, look, we know from experience codes come from minds. Mm-hmm. This code is exquisitely optimized. It sure appears to be unique or nearly unique mm-hmm. in its optimization capacity. It, you know, a code can't really evolve. It's not obviously not a frozen accident. And so you're almost forced into to the, other, the last option, mm-hmm. which right. is – 
this really does look like it's evidence for design. And to me, the, the design of the genetic code takes a special place because it is the set of rules that define, in a sense, biochemistry. It right, defines yeah. the information in DNA, mm-hmm. right? And, and so it's really the, it's the heart of biochemistry in that sense. And so if you expect to see evidence for design, this would be where you should see it. And in, and in fact, that's where we do see it. So. Right. Well, it, it, the, I, I just kind of wonder if there's a, a way to look at this. You can say, all right, is this really design? And, and it seems like there's a substantial amount of evidence pushing that. Um, I know when I do computer programming, you know, I've said multiple times that it's like, you know, getting it to do what I want is easy. Getting it to handle all the ways things could go wrong is where I spend most of my effort. Um, yeah, and it seems like the genetic code has that in spades. Yeah. But I also know there are times where I will go look at somebody else's code, and it's like, oh, this looks random, or oh, this looks extraneous. And I've I've learned how to say, okay, there, especially with certain people that I know code very well, it's like, this may look extraneous to me, but if I think it's extraneous, it's probably either something going on that I'm not aware of, so I need to dig in deeper before I change it. It seems like that's what's going on here, maybe a good rule of thumb for how to approach yeah. genetic code. It's like where we say, hey, there looks like there's other ways. It's like, all right, what are we missing here that yeah. it knows how to do that I'm not aware yeah. of? So. Well, you know, and I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's also a bit eerie to think that the the redundancy of the genetic code is is fundamentally specified by the structural constraints of, of, of the transfer RNA molecules <laughs> and the codon, anti-codon interactions, which in effect arise out of the laws of physics itself. Right, yeah. So, there, the, it, it, so it's a bit eerie to think you've got this genetic code that is exquisitely optimized because of the redundancy and that redundancy isn't something that evolution would have stumbled upon, mm-hmm. but is actually something that is seems to be constrained may be prescribed by the very laws of nature. So that in and of itself is a bit eerie when we think Mm -hmm. about the degree of optimization of the code. So it's almost as if somebody intended the the, the code to be in that way. That's fascinating discovery. This is, I just find this fascinating. I'll leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, so uh, we've 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 exhausted, uh, I guess, what we have to say. So anyway, thanks so much for all of you who've tuned in to Star Cells and God. Uh, we just want to remind you to go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. Reasons to believe one. Don't forget to set the reminder so that you're notified when a new episode of Star Cells and God drops. And then also follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. Check out our website, reasons.org. And remember, until the next time we meet, the more that we learn about science, the more that we have reasons to believe.